It's the 23rd of August in the year of our salvation, 2007, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast. We welcome back as our guest today, Joseph Ratzinger, now gloriously reigning as Pope Benedict XVI. We'll also touch base with the great North African Bishop, St. Augustine. podcasts with a focus on Joseph Ratzinger's writings to help people understand better some of the elements of the older use of mass, the usus antiquior, which we are now calling the extraordinary use. This is the Tridentine Mass and uh, all of the different liturgical celebrations and sacraments that were in force just before the Second Vatican Council opened up. Well, because uh, we're doing this because Uh, some of the elements of the older style of liturgy might be confusing to people who didn't grow up with it. In fact, they might be even confusing to people who did grow up with it and just didn't really know what was going on. In any event, uh, we're looking at certain uh, questions like why Latin and why silence and what about bodily position like kneeling and genuflecting and so forth. And one of the most important things that people will notice right away is uh, the position of the priest uh, in relationship to the people and the altar. A lot of people think that this is the priest celebrating Mass with his back to the people, as that old kind of chestnut uh, goes. Well, So it's really helpful to us to uh, look at this, and I've already dealt with it uh, in one podcast, but I think it's very important to go back over this question, looking at it from a different point of view. Uh, so that we can come to to understand it better. It's certainly one of the most obvious and important things uh, having to do with any Mass, not just the older form. And so let's drill down into the position of the priest and the altar relative to the people. And today we're going to use uh, Joseph Ratzinger's book, Feast of Faith, to get into this question. Uh, this uh, this was a very interesting uh, uh, book in its day. It, it was originally published in German in, in 1981, and it was very controversial. If I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, the first Italian edition, as a matter of fact, actually left out some of the original material in the book. They cut some things out because they just, well, let's just say that the publisher just really wasn't maybe necessarily on the same wavelength that Joseph Ratzinger was, and they were a little bit worried about the the way that the book would be received. In any event, uh, Feast of Faith is a series of essays which seek to... um, 
show the importance of liturgy, especially, at least for this book, especially for the social crises we're facing today. You see, liturgy has to be uh, integrated with life, right? And it's interesting to go back and actually trace Joseph Ratzinger's points of concern throughout all the decades of his work as a theologian when he's talking about liturgy. Now, remember, that I contend that one of the reasons why Pope Benedict issued the motu proprio summorum pontificum uh, which de-restricts the older form of Mass, was to help reroute Catholic identity in its tradition so that we could then revitalize a church that has something important to say to the world. I mean, we can't say anything to the world unless we know who we are, right? Well, that's what liturgy is all about. We have to do something about liturgy, and so Summorum Pontificum plays a very important role in, shall we say, a kind of a martial plan for the church. Marshall Plan was an image that one of the people commenting on the blog made. I think it's just a wonderful image. I think I'll use it more often. In any event, uh, for Ratzinger, our identity and our liturgy are inextricably bound together. And you can find this also in his writings uh, already as Pope Benedict. Uh, for example, in Sacramentum Caritatis, uh, Benedict argued that we are our rights. Uh, the way we pray has a reciprocal relationship with what we believe and therefore how we act both within the church herself and then outwardly toward the world at large. And this uh, principle sometimes expressed with the phrase lex orandi, lex credendi, that the law of praying is the law of believing. And this is in fact the operative principle, or one of the operative principles, in the Holy Father's Modu Proprio Summorum Pontificum. Uh, this is at the heart of what he's trying to do with the older form of Mass. So the reading that you're going to hear uh, from uh, his Ratzinger's book, Feast of Faith, uh, is going to concern the eastward position of Mass, the way that it is directed toward the Lord. And uh, there may be some words in here which uh, some of you might not know, and you can keep your ear tuned to this uh, vocabulary. He's going to use the word, for example, Trinitarian, which is, of course, just a fancy word for uh, the the dimension of the Trinity, the three divine persons, distinct but all having one in the and the same divine nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God but three persons. So that's what Trinitarian is, if you don't happen to be familiar with that word. Uh, you'll hear the word parousia, this is a Greek word. Uh, it's used in the New Testament, and it means the coming of Christ, and especially the second coming of Christ. Of course, Christ comes to us in many different ways. Of course, he came uh, in the incarnation, in his birth at Bethlehem, and he comes during Mass, the consecration. He comes in communion. He comes in the person of the priest. He comes in the person of our neighbor. He comes in the words of Scripture. But uh, when we talk about parousia, what we're really dealing with is a Christian reflection on Christ's return at the end of time. And remember, the Mass, you know, parousia and Mass are connected together because the Mass aims us toward the Lord who is coming. Uh, mass is a journey toward him. And so parousia uh, is an important word for considering what Mass is about, and you're going to hear it. Uh, he uses the term iconostasis, or iconostasis, as some people say. This is a physical barrier separating the sanctuary and the nave, the place of the altar and the, where the priests are, from the congregation. Uh, in Eastern churches. It's very important in Eastern liturgy. Uh, and iconostasis has doors 
in it uh, that people pass through at different times during the liturgy, the divine liturgy, and it's decorated with icons, a specific series of icons. And um, it, it looks like a wall, basically, separating priest and people, but it really isn't a wall at all. It's actually kind of a cosmic bridge. It's a cosmic doorway. It actually unites the congregation with uh, the, the altar, and the priests are on the altar. Uh, and this becomes evident in the way that the iconostasis is used uh, during uh, the Eastern liturgy. So that's what an iconostasis is. Uh, you'll hear the word soteriological, and soteriology is the study of our salvation. Uh, soter is savior in Greek, and so it deals with what Christ did. In fact, what all three persons of the Trinity did in our salvation. Soteriology, soteriological, it's about our salvation. You'll hear eschatological. Now, eschaton is Greek word meaning the end. And so by eschatology, we're talking about the study of the end times. The return of the Lord, of course, is the parousia, is part of the eschatological uh, reflection of, the, of Christians. But it's all about the summing up of all creation so that God is all in all. Eschatology deals with the end times. So let's dig into this reading from the Feast of Faith. It's in a section toward the end of the book called Eastward or Westward Facing Position. Eastward or Westward Facing Position A Correction Nowadays, the question of eastward or westward facing position is hardly mentioned anymore. Nor would it be right, after the upheavals of past years, to press for further external changes. Therefore, it seems all the more important to promote the kind of liturgical education which will enable people to participate in a proper inward manner, involving them in that movement, that direction, which is of the essence of the Eucharist. In doing so, we must be aware of the mistaken approaches which can easily arise out of a misunderstanding of the liturgical reform. In an impressive article in the International Catholic Review Communio, Volume 5, Number 4, 1978, Everett A. Diedrich spoke of the unfolding presence of Christ in the celebration of Mass, giving a sensitive treatment of the liturgy's inner dynamism as it proceeds step by step to make Christ present. Apropos, he observed that in the old rite the Mass was celebrated facing the altar, that is, toward the Holy of Holies, an observation which caused me to make the following correction. The eastward-facing position of the celebrant in the old Mass was never intended as a celebration toward the Holy of Holies, nor can it really be described as facing the altar. 
In fact, it would be contrary to all theological reason, since the Lord is present in the Eucharistic gifts during the Mass in the same way as he is in the gifts of the tabernacle which come from the Mass. Thus, the Eucharist would be celebrated from the host to the host, which is plainly meaningless. There is only one inner direction of the Eucharist, namely, from Christ in the Holy Spirit to the Father. The only question is how this can be best expressed in the liturgical form. Thus, the positive content of the old eastward-facing direction lay not in its orientation to the tabernacle. It was twofold. The original meaning of what nowadays is called the priest turning his back on the people is, in fact, as J. A. Jungmann has consistently shown, the priest and people together facing the same way in a common act of Trinitarian worship, such as Augustine introduced following the sermon by the prayer Conversi ad Dominum. Priest and people were united in facing eastward, that is, a cosmic symbolism was drawn into the community celebration, a factor of considerable importance. For the true location and the true context of the Eucharistic celebration is the whole cosmos. Facing east makes this cosmic dimension of the Eucharist present through liturgical gesture. Because of the rising sun, the east, Oriens, was naturally both a symbol of the resurrection, and to that extent it was not merely a Christological statement, but also a reminder of the Father's power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, and a presentation of the hope of the parousia, where priest and people together face the same way, what we have is a cosmic orientation and also an interpretation of the Eucharist in terms of resurrection and Trinitarian theology. Hence, it is also an interpretation in terms of parousia, a theology of hope, in which every Mass is an approach to the return of Christ. In short, what Father Diedrich calls facing the altar was in reality expressing a view of the Eucharistic celebration in the context of cosmos and parousia. It must be added that, according to E. Peterson, this eastward-facing position for prayer, making the cosmos a sign of Christ and thus defining the cosmos as the locus of prayer, was underlined very early on by the custom of placing a cross on the east wall of Christian meeting-houses. First, this was seen as a sign of the returning Christ. Later, it became more and more a reminder of the Lord's historical passion, and finally the eschatological idea disappeared almost entirely from the image of the cross. This primitive Christian tradition is behind the old rubric which ordered that there must be a cross on the altar, so what has come down to us in the altar cross is a relic of the ancient eastward orientation. It maintained the ancient tradition of praying to the Lord, who is to come under the sign of the cross, a tradition with strong associations in former times with the cosmic symbol of the east. 
So, with regard to the eastward-facing position of the celebration prior to the council, one cannot talk of celebrating toward the altar, let alone toward the Holy of Holies, but it can be said that the Mass was celebrated facing the image of the cross, which embodied in itself the whole theology of the Oriens. In this sense, there was a continuity going right back to the threshold of the apostolic era. Now, it must be admitted that, at least since the 19th century, not only had the awareness of the liturgy's cosmic orientation been lost, but there was also little understanding of the significance of the image of the cross as a point of reference for the Christian liturgy. Hence, the ancient eastward orientation of the celebration became meaningless, and people could begin to speak of the priest celebrating facing the wall, or imagine that he was celebrating toward the tabernacle. This misunderstanding alone can explain the sweeping triumph of the new celebration facing the people, a change which has taken place with amazing unanimity and speed, without any mandate, and perhaps for that very reason. All this would be inconceivable if it had not been preceded by a prior loss of meaning from within. The best results of liturgical scholarship, such as Father Diedrich's article, explain the new orientation by referring to the inner dynamism of the liturgical action as the community's progressive approach to the Lord. In this way, the attempt is made to fuse the present direction of the celebration with the nature of the ancient Christian inheritance. Generally, however, this view is not shared by many people. The general view is totally determined by the strongly felt community character of the Eucharistic celebration, in which priest and people face each other in a dialogue relationship. This does express one aspect of the Eucharist, but the danger is that it can make the congregation into a closed circle, which is no longer aware of the explosive Trinitarian dynamism which gives the Eucharist its greatness. A truly liturgical education will have to use all its resources to counter this idea of an autonomous, complacent community. The community does not carry on a dialogue with itself. It is engaged on a common journey toward the returning Lord. Here are three suggestions for this kind of education. 1. Today we are in the midst of a crisis in the anthropocentric view of the world, a crisis which pervades the whole of man's self-made world. At such a time we need to rediscover, and indeed we are rediscovering, the significance of creation. We also need to be reminded that liturgy involves the cosmos, that Christian liturgy is cosmic liturgy. In it we pray and sing in concert with everything in heaven and earth and under the earth. We join in with the praise rendered by the sun and the stars. Thus, in church architecture, for instance, we should see to it that churches are not designed merely with human utility in mind, 
but that they stand in the cosmos, inviting the sun to be a sign of the praise of God, and a sign of the mystery of Christ for the assembled community. A rediscovery of the value of the church building's eastward orientation would help, it seems to me, in recovering a spirituality which embraces the dimension of creation. 2. Traditionally, the East and the image of the cross, that is, the cosmic and the soteriological aspects of spirituality, were fused. The cross itself, which may originally have had a purely eschatological significance, called to mind the Lord's suffering, faith in the resurrection, and the hope of the parousia, that is, it signified the whole tension of the Christian concept of time. It is this tension which has transformed star time into human time and into God's time. For God is not time, but he has time for us. In so many ways the cross embodies the theology of the icon, which is a theology of incarnation and transfiguration as against the prescription of images in the Old Testament and in Islam, it indicates a new feature in the view of God as a result of the Son's incarnation. God presents himself to our senses. Now, in the man who is his son, he is depictable. There are many reasons for the loss of the image which has occurred in the wake of the council but it is not something that we can accept with equanimity. Surely we must regard it as a priority to re-establish the meaning of the image of the cross, which has been a constant shaping factor on the whole tradition of faith. Even now, when the priest faces the people, the cross should be placed on the altar in such a way that both priest and people can see it, at the Eucharistic prayer, they should not look at one another. They ought to behold him, the pierced Savior. 3. It always impresses me that our Protestant brethren, in transforming the medieval liturgical forms, have achieved a real balance between, on the one hand, the relationship of the community to its leader, and, on the other, their common relationship to the cross. Their whole basic approach laid great weight on the community character of worship and the interplay of leader and congregation, whereas in the Catholic liturgy of former times this only consisted in the priests turning round for a brief Dominus Vobiscum, or to invite the people to pray. But when it is a question of praying together, Protestants, people and leader, together turn to the image of the crucified. I think we should seriously try to learn from this. When we pray, it is not necessary, indeed it is not even appropriate, to look at one another. The same is true when we receive Holy Communion. Local conditions will determine how best we can do justice to these points. In many cases, our second suggestion may be a practical way forward. 
even in St. Peter's in Rome, as a result of the exaggerated and misconceived idea of celebrating facing the people, the altar cross has been removed from the center of the altar so that it does not obstruct the view between celebrant and congregation. But the cross on the altar is not obstructing the view. It is a common point of reference. It is an open iconostasis which, far from hindering unity, actually facilitates it. It is the image which draws and unites the attention of everyone. I would even be so bold as to suggest that the cross on the altar is actually a necessary precondition for celebrating toward the people. It would help in clarifying the distinction between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. The first is concerned with proclamation, and hence with a direct face-to-face -face situation, whereas the second is a matter of us all worshiping together in response to the call, Conversi ad Dominum. Let us turn to the Lord. Let us be converted to the Lord. Jesus, my Lord, my God, my all, how can I love thee as I ought? And how reveal this wondrous gift so Selection from Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger's book, Feast of Faith. Of course, it's been reprinted uh, by Ignatius Press. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Everybody should have it, I think. It's actually fairly fairly accessible, this book. It's not going to weigh you down too much if, if you don't consider yourself uh, very well read. Don't be afraid of this book. It's very interesting. There's some wonderful uh, personal reflections in it. Uh, I especially enjoy his reflections on what Corpus Christi means to him. Uh, it's a truly beautiful uh, personal reflections from Joseph Ratzinger. And notice how in that reading the cosmic dimension is so important for Ratzinger when he thinks about liturgy. Say, for him, Mass is never about just the here and now, even though the here and now, the heat nunc are very important points of focus for our spiritual lives. We can't really be truly healthy in, in a spiritual life unless we're considering also the here and now. But the here and now should never close us in on ourselves. It always has to open us outward, outward, always to uh, the cosmos in the future. Uh, for Ratzinger, Remember the person of the Logos, the Word made flesh, uh, made flesh but never confined, is always the true actor in Mass. Christ is always the one who is the true actor in the liturgy. And so the liturgy is Christ in action. He is acting, he is speaking, uh, he is taking our voices and our gestures. 
He's drawing us beyond ourselves as we are here and now into him and into what will be. The liturgy of the church always opens us out into the entire cosmos. And so liturgical action brings us into a different relationship with all of the cosmos, everything that is seen and unseen in creation. And so, uh, in, as a matter of fact, in this way, and I think it's something that he was touching on in his first point, in this way, liturgy could become even the basis for a theology of ecology, our stewardship of creation, how we deal with our environment, for example, uh, which is uh, something that, uh, that needs a little bit of theological work. Uh, notice also the respect with which uh, Ratzinger uh, treats present-day practice even when, when he thinks it's wrong, and also the way that non-Catholics pray. Uh, he can have respect for these things and talk about them respectfully without necessarily thinking that they're okay just to be left as they are. And so, for example, first, he says from the very beginning of the reading that we had that we shouldn't just you know rush to make changes. We've already had a lot of upheaval. We've had too much upheaval. And so, even though we want change, the change should probably therefore be gradual, not just sudden, right? Uh, isn't it true that we had so many things imposed on us uh, too quickly after the council has created a lot of wounds in the church that need to be healed, so we need gradual change? Even though, you know, we've had quite a long time now, maybe, maybe we can speed some of the changes up, right? Uh, but he also notes uh, in here that Protestants... Uh, turn to the cross to pray and that we should do the same so we can actually learn something from non-Catholics without necessarily saying that they have anything superior to us. There are still things that they can uh, remind us of and teach us about um, in their example. Uh, Catholics have to a certain extent lost uh, this sense of proper orientation of the liturgy and the position of the priest in the congregation relative to the altar has changed and it hasn't changed for the better and it changed partly because we've lost the sense of liturgy as a cosmic action involving more than ourselves and also we lost the sense that a cross is a symbol uh, with many different layers of meaning in it it's not just about the sacrifice of the lord but it's also about the end times when Christ returns to take all creation to himself and submit it to the Father so that God will be all in all, as we hear in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, these are very, very important things, and we need to recover the sense. And so very practically, uh, concretely, Ratzinger argues that we should return to an ad orientum celebration. And we can do this in different ways. Uh, we could, for example, we could start building churches on a proper eastern axis again to make really concrete in creation what it is that we believe we're doing in the liturgy. Uh, we should also begin to uh, be uh, celebrating Mass ad orientem, uh, to the one who is coming, ad orientem, to the east. Have an eastward celebration. Even if we can't have it physically, geographically eastward, we have to have a liturgical east in our churches. And that is facilitated better by having the priest and the people facing the same direction, especially where the cross is, because the cross is like that bridge, it's its opening, it's like that view, that telescope toward the one who is coming towards us. So in Mass we are journeying toward the one who is coming from the east. Uh, 
but we shouldn't do this all very abruptly right we shouldn't create upheaval uh, so that even in those places where priest and people are facing each other across the altar uh, we can begin paving the way towards a, a better orientation of Mass, at least by putting the cross, this incredibly uh, powerful symbol, between the priest and the people, so that in the proper moment, uh, not the part you know which is more involved with proclamation, like the readings of the homily and, and so forth, but when we get into the Eucharistic sacrifice itself, that at least the people and the priest are facing the cross together, even though it might be between them. But, I mean, really, isn't it clear, isn't it clear from all of this that having the priest and people face the same direction, that is, face the liturgical east, is far superior to facing each other, a cross between them or not. Isn't that clear? Conversi ad Dominum, and uh, said that St. Augustine used it. Well, Augustine, uh, the great North African bishop who died in 430, used this phrase to con conclude some of his sermons to his people. And uh, it's a matter of fact, even in the, this wonderful form of a prayer to... Um, to remind people what it is that they're actually there for, you know, after the proclamation, shall we say, section of Mass, then the, then the gears really shift, 
and we have to turn toward the Lord, everyone facing the Lord together. And it might be good to hear, for example, how conversia dominum is used by Augustine in one of his sermons uh, to conclude, for example, uh, Sermon 183. Uh, let's hear the Latin, and then let's hear an English translation of it. Conversia dominum deum patrem omnipotentem, puro corde ei quantum potest parvitas nostra, maximas atque veras gratias agamus, precantes toto animo singularem mansuetudine meus, ut preces nostras in beneplacito suo exaudire dignetur, inimicum quoque a nostris actibus et cogitationibus sua virtute expellat, nobis multiplicet fidem, mentem cubernet, spirituales cogitationes concedat, et ad beatitudinem suam perducat per Iesum Christum filium eius. Amen. Let us turn toward the Lord God and Father Almighty, and with a pure heart, let us give him sincere thanks as well as our littleness will allow. Let us with our whole hearts beseech his extraordinary clemency, that he may vouchsafe to hear our prayers according to his good pleasure. May he by his divine power drive our enemies far from us, lest we fall under the sway of the evil one in act or thought. May he increase our faith, rule our mind, give us spiritual thoughts, and at last lead us to his blessedness. Through Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen. With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. There are opportunities uh, there for you to make comments and also uh, to pick up a couple of phone numbers, one in the UK and one in the United States, where you can call me and leave me voicemail. And uh, if your comments are good and pertinent, maybe I'll integrate them into these podcasts. You never know. In any event, I will ask from you all to pray for me, and uh, all of you be assured that my prayers are with you as well. God bless you. Bye-bye. Ogni donna sa capire quello che si vuole. Se una smaglia ti prende, 